Good, I see that the walls are getting more popular. There's an old rule that the distance to the speaker is proportional to the affection of the audience for that speaker. <laughs> I could get some mileage out of this. I wanted to indulge your attention tonight with um, what I hope is going to be a preamble to the actual talk. The preamble is practical. Uh, at the stage of our retreat, it would be appropriate to make some extensive um, treatment of, of the hindrances because this is the territory uh, if you're not in jhanas, then this is the territory you, you basically be cruising in right now. However, uh, I am a little tired of my hindrance talk, and uh, I am also a little tired of um, not framing some of meditation practice in a, in a bigger context. But I would like to do justice to the fact that uh, there is one hindrance that uh, makes us very helpless, and this is the hindrance of lethargy, sleepiness, sloth, torpor. It has a number of names. I just want to encourage you to, if you feel assailed by this hindrance, that you do not despair, uh, but instead that you inquire and investigate. Often this hindrance has a somewhat shameful note to it. You know, you come here with the uh, express intention to wake up and then you kind of keep falling off your little perch yeah <laughs> and nodding you know and uh, spend time in somnolence and uh, stray from the path of wakefulness in many ways so i think it is worth inquiring into the reasons and the dynamics that underpin this particular hindrance as the name says, hindrance, it means it's not your personal fault. You know, it's not sort of a congenital curse you personally have incurred by some horrific previous actions in a long distant life that now you have to pay for. So this is not the idea. If you understand a hindrance as a hindrance, then you recognize um, it's quite... I wouldn't say transpersonal, uh, I hope not, but universal, let's put it like that. Yeah. It's a condition that affects us all, that the mind is prone to be affected by. Now let us look at some reasons for sleepiness. The Pali words Tinamida suggest two things. One of them is lethargy, and the other one is stiffness. It's kind of a, a sort of a barrenness of mind, uh, a rigor, something that does not move anymore, something that does not resonate anymore, something that has lost its um, yeah, capacity for resonance. So, uh, let us start. Uh, there's a list, let's make that top down. Obviously, the, there's the honest fatigue, the honest exhaustion, you know, after a long day of arduous meditative exertion, <laughs> you finally succumb to 
a natural fatigue that you have accrued in hours of, of great dedication. Um, it may be that, indeed. Often enough, to be honest with you, it is not that. Often enough, we are uh, not fatigued. It is not the fatigue or the lack of sleep that makes us feel sleepy. Often enough, there are other reasons, and it may be worth just measuring some of those reasons to your particular condition and see whether any one of them fits, or whether you have suspicions that this needs to be pursued a little further. So to be honest with you, I'm not going to give you solutions. You know, There are no solutions for the five hindrances within meditation practice. That's the bad news. Uh, there are some strategies and coping techniques, but the resolution of these five hindrances is not in your meditation practice, is in your life. So in many ways, some of the stuff that these five hindrances manifest are the accumulation of things that take place in your life and that can only be resolved in your life, of which hopefully your meditation is part of, but not exclusively. Yeah. So... Um, Part of understanding these hindrances or, or dealing with these hindrances is actually deepening your understanding beyond what you currently believe or beyond your immediate reactiveness. So with sleepiness, this is particularly uh, so because it's visible. Uh, since human beings don't fall asleep all in one piece, they fall asleep sense by sense. You know, we're, we're kind of our ayatanas are keeling over one after the other when we fall asleep. The first one to go is our sense of balance. The last one to go is our sense of hearing. Practically, that means if the first one goes, your balance is going. Something is going to happen to your posture. Yeah. Aristocratic knot, you know, <laughs> big swoop, <laughs> yeah, discreet curl up, yeah. Designer keel over kind of something. There's there's many forms of this. Yeah, you all know this, and then generally this is followed by a somewhat ashamed, compensatory jerk back. <laughs> Hope nobody see it. Yeah, and this is understandable. I would expect it has happened to most of us. In fact, I'm pr I'm inclined to not take you serious as a meditator if you've not met sleepiness and lethargy. Yeah. I would think this is the hallmark of, of any seasoned meditator to actually have encountered that hindrance. Before that, you maybe just be too busy thinking. Yeah. <laughs> so if it happens to you, take it as a sign of nobility. You know. <laughs> I think this is an accolade on the path of a meditator to receive the higher initiation into the hindrance of sleepiness. So other reasons for sleepiness may be that you are basically close to coming from sleep and your sleep in the morning has some momentum and you've decided that you want to continue the softness, the cushiness, the pleasant fuzziness of having just been in bed and now you would like to replicate this soft fuzzy state on the meditation cushion and you pull up your blank you nestle yourself a little bit in, and then, lo and behold, very quickly, the familiar drowsiness sets in again. So this, this may be one of the reasons for sleepiness. Or you may simply have overeaten a little bit. This may be uh, harmless enough, but in a meditative context, often 
you have quite severe consequences. A little bit of overeating can actually give you quite a lot of sleepiness. Did you know that a third of your physical energy is consumed for digesting? So a little bit more food than you need uh, does give you a lot more work to digest. Sometimes, and this is important to state, sometimes uh, a reason for sleepiness is the fact that we are not clear about what we're actually doing in our meditation practice. The lack of clarity of your kamatana, of your object of practice or your particular exercise. So being fuzzy about what you actually have as a specific task in your meditative pursuit is one of the reasons that calls for sleepiness. And it's maybe worth considering that you are clear. You know, what is my plan A, what I actually try to do? What is my plan B? What do I do when I find out that I'm not doing what I've agreed with myself, what I do? Unless you have plan A and plan B in place, you're an easy prey for sleepiness. You know, just any stray thought can drag you out into the woods. And there's, there's many... There's many a sleepiness lurking there, just waiting to fall on you and bag you, basically. <laughs> so clarity of your object of meditation is very, very useful. Then sleepiness may simply be resistance. You know, it may be camouflaged aversion because sleepiness is a lot more pleasant than feeling averse. It may be that your aversion actually camouflages a sleepiness. It takes off the edge. It doesn't hurt so much. It's not so disagreeable. So you just sit there, particularly if, if you have something in your belly, it's warm, nobody's asking things from you. you just, if you wait long enough, somebody's going to ring a bell. You know. <laughs> Time passes. No danger. So there is this type of... Um, Resistance can camouflage, you know, you can kind of meet your resistance. This is particularly likely if you happen to be a little willful. So you meet your resistance in the form of a passive aggressive saboteur that knows, you know, she's dragged me here, she's got me to meditate up in the morning, I have to sit with these strange people in the hall, she can do all this with me, but as soon as she lets go, and she will have to let go if she wants to become quiet, then I catch her, yeah. I throw, I throw a spanner, yeah. And then, and then you get caught. And from, once you release the willful effort, suddenly you are prone to basically be dragged into some of the resistances that have built up. And that you may not have acknowledged and that you may not have negotiated with, you know. The resistances that would have preferred a skiing holiday rather than New Year at Barry Mass. And that you've overpowered with your spiritual superego, but that now are showing up somewhere between you getting samadhi and you letting go of your willfulness, which you know that the willfulness is not going to get you into stillness. So you will need to release that willfulness. And at that moment, your parts that have been not spoken to, that may have been sidelined, that may have been um, blasted away by your uh, spiritual ambition, um, those parts reassert themselves at the moment of weakness. 
sometimes um, you get a simple backlash. If you've left, lived a very busy life, you know, on the fast track, much work, much commitment, and then you come here, it is very likely that something in you just recovers. You know? So your psyche is quite smart. It's also economical. It realizes this is safe here. I'm getting food. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm being left to my, I'm being left in peace. And I just, I can just recover a bit. You know, I can just compensate for what I've done too much. I can, you know, go into cruise mode. So sometimes this is just a healthy response to the speed in your life previous to the retreat. You know? And it may take a moment, a day or two to come out of this. Um, finally, and that is probably the un most unlikely uh, reason, sometimes your uh, psyche decides that what you're doing is not safe. You know? So either because you don't have the necessary support, because you don't have the necessary guidance, because there are something is not working for you in this place or with these teachers or the amount of available time. And your psyche decides that whenever you get close to anything dangerous, anything big, anything possibly transformative, um, she just puts you to sleep because she has decided that this is not worthy. This is not possible right now. It's unsafe what you're doing. I've got a function Monday morning that's not the moment for mystical experiences right now. So part of you, whenever you go close to something that may move your heart and mind in a bigger way, something just shuts down the system so that you don't do any danger because the milieu is not good or something in your personal chemistry with the conditions is not working. So the psyche has its own way of protecting itself from you being a bit um, frivolous or too ambitious or too pushy. And then you just get a sudden onslaught of sleepiness whenever it gets interesting. If you find yourself struggling with sleepiness, do note when you are not sleepy. You know, are you sleepy over breakfast? Are you sleepy when you leave the hall? Are you sleepy when you walk, when you eat, when you take a shower? Just acknowledge fluctuations in degrees of wakefulness. If you come in, you feel bright awake, somebody says something about meditation, you go into sleepiness, somebody rings a well, you shake your head and think, oh, what was that? And you feel bright awake again. Generally, that is an indication that your sleepiness is induced by psychological conditions rather than by honest fatigue. So I would like to encourage you to practically to investigate the physical vocabulary of your body of sensations of sleepiness. Do find out what your body tells you and how it tells you that it is sleepy. For what it's worth, I can tell you what I know about my body. You know, I have sort of a leaden flow around my eyes. I have a hardness in my neck. Something in my breath gets brittle. There's usually some tightening at the upper torso. Um, a heaviness, my eyelids. Also, a, a kind of a rigor that seems to creep up on me. 
And there's a particular brand of sensations, generally in the upper torso, that goes with this. Energetically, I have a feeling of fullness in my lower abdomen and heaviness. Um, now, your body may give you very different signals, but I'm pretty sure it will give you signals if you allow these signals to be perceived, if you do not brush them aside, if you not try to not have them. That's what we usually do with sleeping, is we try not to have it. Then your chances to be able to do something about your sleepiness are a lot better than when you pro put aside the early warning signs, displace them as long as possible, and when you can't displace them because they have now really gained momentum, then your possibilities are very limited. You know, you can stand up, raise your arms, um, open your eyes wide, things like that you can always do. But there are many more subtle things you can do with sleepiness beforehand if and only if you recognize its sensations in the body. Do not wait till your mind tells you that you're sleepy. Your mind will not tell you that you're sleepy. It will just start dreaming. Yeah, It will just kind of go a little more florid here and there. It will not stop its activity. There is no clear demarcation. This is crisp and clear and now I'm in about to enter into the state of sleepiness. There's a sort of a hazy momentum and a, a kind of, it's, um, it's a spectrum experience. So the mind is not reliable in this. You have to talk to your body and speak and receive its early warning signals. If you do that, much can be won you can get actually quite concentrated on the symptoms of sleepiness in the body. So, end of preamble. I would like to say something about um, the Indriyas. This is an interesting Sanskrit and Pali term, uh, confusingly used for different things. And these Indriyas are translated sometimes as cardinal virtues, as spiritual faculties. And to give you a flavor of the meaning of that word, which I think good translations uh, do not exist for it, but you will understand very quickly what this term is about. Indra is uh, a god of the Indian pantheon. And if you zoom out leave India behind and do, do a little anthropology uh, or comparative religion, you recognize that this character has very similar fellows in other <coughs> religious setups. So one, one of his uh, relatives would be Zeus or the Nordic god Thor. Yeah, both, all three of them are pretty masculine blokes. They, um, they are associated with power, with creation, with dominance, um, distinctly uh, patriarchal, uh, also associated all three of them with weather. So Thor has his hammer, Mjolnir, with which he thunders. Zeus has a blackened fist from throwing lightnings. And Indra has his famous Vajra, yeah, which the Tibetan tradition has taken over as the Dorje. The Vajra, the diamond uh, which he also creates weather conditions. So Indra is, is a fairly imposing uh, and um, commandeering character. And from, from that two things, 
can be taken. One, one of them is the notion of dominance, a notion of governance, a force that governs something in our experience. In one term, the word indria refers to sense organs. Now, this is a little strange. These sense organs are powers that do things to us. So we are under their governance. We are under their power. In the term indriya for sense organs, so the inner sense organ, the faculty of seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, touching, and uh, thinking, and the outer uh, equivalent of that respective sense organ, or organ, the, o the object of sight, of sound, of smell, of taste, of touch, and of objects of thinking, which comprise six inner organs and six objects, these 12 uh, are considered to be one part. Yeah? So, Buddhist teaching is not interested with the eye as such, it is interested with the faculty of seeing. So it does not refer to the fleshly organ of the eye. There is a word for that, but that word is rarely used. What is used is the word chakko, which means the, the faculty of seeing. So these sense organs in Buddhist psychology are something that exert a dynamic over us that makes us do what we do. In other words, we are often overpowered by our senses. We are dragged along by our senses. These are forces that are not in our control and that can make us seek things, get attached to things, um, and cultivate a relationship of dependency. Yeah. That's important to understand. So in this case, the force or the authority or the dominance from the term Indriya is something that we have to learn to restrain and to subdue and to free ourselves from. If we look at the word indriya when it comes to the virtues, the cardinal virtues, again we have a notion of authority and power. And in this example, the authority and the power is something positive. In fact, all authority, according to uh, Buddhist psychology, comes from these five virtues, these five faculties. They're quickly named. The first one, sada, is basically trust, about which a little more. Uh, in a moment. The second one is virya, which is the mental and physical energy to do things. The third one, very famous, sati, mindfulness, presence of mind. The fourth one, samadhi, stillness, uh, preferably not concentration. Yeah. Uh, concentration is not samadhi. Concentration sounds like something I can do. You know, in English and in other languages, uh, samadhi is not something you can do. Okay, Samadhi is something that is coming to you when you do a few things right. But it's not something you can willfully do. It's not something accessible through power of will. What is accessible through power of will is indeed concentration, which is a form of strained, continued attention. Something very muscular, something which you can only keep up at short distance, something that is prone to induce neck pains and migraines and uh, sweat on your brow.
but it's not Buddhist samadhi. It's not deep tranquility and calm. Just we need to maybe tease that out on another occasion. The fourth uh, one, so is this calm or tranquility, samadhi, and the fifth one is wisdom. I would like to spend a little time on that first one because it gets a lot of bad press. Um, I suspect that a number of you have come to Buddhist meditation practices like myself, or, um, namely because I don't have to believe things before this starts working for me. I found it a great relief that um, I don't actually have to believe things before Buddhist meditation can start working. Um, I've grown up as a Christian, as a Catholic, and um, up till about 10 or 12, I was quite willing to be a Christian. But then they kept stipulating that I believe things. And I said that was very difficult for me. I would like to be convinced of these things. And they said, no, it doesn't work like that. You know, We can do everything for you if you believe, but unless you believe, we can't really do much for you. And I said, well, I would like to believe, but actually... You hear already, I'm not doing this. You know? And uh, so we parted ways. Um, and on that background, I came to Buddhist teaching and I found it a great relief. They didn't ask me to believe anything. They said a few things. I was starting with Zen practice. They just said, you know, do this. Don't believe that. Sit still. Don't move. Uh, bow when you get hit. Uh, <laughs> So I was very grateful for that, uh, eternally grateful for that. While this may not inspire me today, much of what I found attractive then, I have come with some embarrassment to recognize was a, a misunderstanding on my part. <laughs> However, it did get me going and it did allow me to associate with the teaching and uh, you know, an experiential milieu where meditative exercises could be undertaken and I, I am very grateful for this. So, in many ways, I came, like, like I suspect a number of you, to this practice for the freedom of not having to believe, not having to uh, declare a creed or uh, voice a great faith. And as the time went on, I became more and more interested, actually, in what that role is of the virtue of sadha. Now, how that actually pans out. Because belief, it probably couldn't be. Yeah. Not the belief as I had learned it. Not the belief as uh, I think the Jesuits have most to say on the nature of belief. Um, uh, seem to define it. Um, so the word, sadha, hadaya, has to do with hadaya, hrdaya, with the con meaning the heart. So that's already a big clue. Faith or trust, as a translation for the Buddhist word sadha, is a heart quality. Okay, It's not a belief, a mind quality. It's a heart quality. It is connected etymologically and for all practical purposes with the heart. So let us look at some of the features of that sadha, of that trust. Because obviously this is not an easy thing, trust. It's, it's a mixed, uh, it's a slightly paradoxical quality. On one hand, it seems a gift. Yeah? There's a lot of Christian theological argument whether, whether faith is a gift or a grace or whether something to be done. Um, and Buddhists seem to take 
this paradox at face value. So they say some of it is a gift and some of it is a virtue. Now virtues are things you can practice. And that's the kick about virtues. They're things you can recognize, you can admire, you can see, you can affirm, you can strengthen, you can build up. If you don't have them in yourself, you can recognize it in others. You at least can admire it and start to resemble it because that part of you that admires will be able to grow into this. When you can admire something, you already have to seed for what you admire in yourself. That's why it's a lot better to admire people and things rather than be jealous of them or try to belittle them so that you feel a little better in your mediocrity. Yeah? <laughs> so if you can, do admire. It pays off. Quite selfish reasons. It's also more pleasant an, as an experience and it's validating for whoever you admire. Yeah? So you can't lose on that one. So what are aspects of Saddam? Intellectually, let's dissect that a little. Intellectually, sata means that you are assenting to things you don't have proof yet. Proof through your senses, or uh, proof through your reasoning, or you don't have any factual evidence, or uh, there aren't any RCT-controlled studies yet on that particular topic. There are still some topics out there whom we don't have RCTs on. That's a powerful one. In Buddhist teaching, the faith or the trust at that stage is something provisional. It is a trust that allows you to actually engage with something, to take up a practice, to do something of which you have not yet guarantee or empirical evidence or sensory uh, um, clarity that it works. Yeah. Now that enables you to do things which may yield a result because you do them. If you demand that they be proven before you engage with them, you're putting the cart before the horse. Yeah. So in Buddhist understanding on the path, uh, trust is something that enables you to engage with stuff, to follow along something that you don't have certainty that it works. It's plausible enough to act as a working hypothesis. It seems doable. It seems there's some folk out there who think that this is a worthy thing and you trust these guys and that enables you to actually engage with it. That's very powerful. It's not the end thing. If a kinjana tells you that eggs grow on trees, you better don't believe that. Yeah? Just because you think he's a nice guy or you know he strings a few thoughts together. The purpose of trust is that you have enough confidence, enough energy accessible that you actually engage with something. In Buddhist terms, you would undertake a yoga. Yeah, you would take up the yoke of a practice. That's how the Buddha speaks. You know, yoke yourself up. Anu yoga is a very common term for surrendering into something, giving yourself to something, giving energy to something, taking the yoke, which means you restrict lateral movement so that you can uh, go a little further, go a little deeper in one direction. You give up other directions. Yeah, that's the purpose of a yoke. Very 
clear metaphor. So now we believe a lot of stuff, as you will know. You take a lot of stuff on trust. You take authorities on trust. You trust your own critical mind. You trust your uh, degree of understanding. You trust your level of information. You trust experts. Um, you, you may trust science. You may have a particular trust in people in uh, white coats or, you know, anybody who has a big smile or who has a soft, low voice or people with mustaches or <laughs> horn-rimmed glasses or people with a lot of airing in TV, you know. We, we all trust things. It's very difficult not to trust. Part of that trust has to do in people, in stuff, in statements, but also trust in ourselves, trust in our ca capacity to hold things. Um, my native English speakers all tell me that the word faith is not a good translation for Saddam. Um, I, still, um, I still have a sort of affinity for that word faith. And in, in, in the idiom that trust or faith is something is when I don't have to have beliefs anymore. You know, it's the attitude I can fall back onto when I don't have to have beliefs anymore. If I don't have that, I need to be worried a lot. So the direct opposite of an intellectual faith or trust is doubt and perplexity. That's directly what I get if I lack this trust. Obviously, um, there are more than intellectual dimensions to, to, to Saddam. So, what would be a volitional dimension of Saddam? That's an interesting one. The volitional dimension of Saddam means that I have the power uh, uh, to be resolute. I have the strength to do courageous acts of will. Yeah? And I have the self-confidence that uh, what I will do, I am actually able to do, I can do. Yeah? That's an interesting one. So if we look at the old teachings, often people speak that lack of trust is lack of trust in the efficacy of a teaching, in the efficacy of a, of a technique, a method, a practice, lack of trust in, an, in, the, in a teacher, lack of trust in... Um, a lifestyle. The lack of trust I encounter most these days is a lack of trust in, in oneself. It's a lack of self-confidence. We seem to be a culture that instills a lot of self-mistrust. Um, and so I meet uh, the lack of trust both, both in myself, the lack of sadha, and in the people I practice with and I hear often is the, the lack of confidence that they're capable of growing, that they're capable of understanding, that what they do understand is capable of transforming them. So this is a really big one. Sada in the volitional dimension has as its direct opposite things like timidity, wavering, um, a sort of calculating mentality, um, uh, vacillating. St 
stuff you may recognize. You know. Like with doubt, it's a paralyzing experience. Both intellectually and volitionally not having sadha means I will probably not engage very wholeheartedly with stuff. I will not, I'll do two steps forward and then something happens and then the whole project comes into question, grinds to a halt. So I'm easily discouraged when I do not have faith. If you have ever practiced in the East, I've spent a number of years in practicing both with Asian practitioners in the West and then living in the East with Asian practitioners. And one of the things that is very striking to me is that most of the people who have grown up in a native Buddhist tradition um, had much more easy access to this quality of sata. Yeah. And I've envied them for that. You know, like you envy somebody who has something you you don't feel the capacity to emulate. It's not that they were smarter. It's not that they had more power. But somehow, their willingness to have faith and enabled them to just take leaps, I felt I had to do little small steps. And... um, there is a great power if you have trust, you know, if you have confidence, if you can give yourself to something because you, you are not assailed by doubts and perplexity and timidity and wavering and vacillation. It is wonderful, you know, people who can give, or some, give themselves wholeheartedly into their practices or into their commitments or into their relationships are great. This great leaps uh, are possible when people... Uh, are capable of trusting. I personally love it when people trust. I feel when people trust me personally, which is a risky business, I tell you, um, (laughs) I find that not just validating, but I'm also capable of doing much more for them. It's kind of like if they trust me, I trust that we can take bigger risks together. I can trust that even if things happen, we will find a way out or we will find a way forward. If, if I feel I have to contend with their mistrust, and then already that puts me into the defensive. Yeah? It makes me much more cautious. I become um, a lot less heartful. I become a lot, less, a lot more defensive. Yeah? So trust is probably something you like to feel. Yeah, if you think people who trust you, this is a good feeling. I suspect this is a good feeling for you as well. So, what happens emotionally? When I uh, have trust, emotionally, that is accompanied with a sense of serenity, sense of confidence, a sense of lucidity. And conversely, uh, the direct opposites of this would be worry, I'm troubled by many things. I, I, I have a sense of gloominess and imminent doom. Um, that would be the opposite. Yeah. Quite clearly, you may not identify the lack of sadha in the terms I speak to you, but you may easily recognize its opposites. Yeah. Worry or doubt, perplexity, timidity, um, 
feeling troubled, feeling doomed, feeling under the weather uh, with, with many, many things, demands, responsibilities, and a distinct lack of resources. Now, in many ways, you know, this is the recipe for stress. If we wanted to talk psychology, this is the recipe for stress, a, a perceived task that is bigger than the available resource. And the gap can only be compensated by self-sacrificing, speeding up, moving faster, running harder, uh, carrying more. Yeah? You have the circus, uh, the spinning plates, and you just keep running from one to the other and going always to the one that wobbles most. And you're, you're not doing any tricks. You just keep the plates from falling. And if you stop, all will collapse. So that's not faith, that's not trust, that's not sadha. That is being burdened and worried. Lastly, there's a social dimension to uh, trust. And the social dimension means that you, you basically trust in the Buddha and the Sangha. And that means that you, or in the institutions that are associated with that, you feel capable of actually engaging with committing yourself to good causes you can uh, you trust enough that you offer your energies your skills your resources your wits to worthy undertakings ims as a institution in the wake of the buddha sasana of the buddha's dispensation yeah? so you have a trusting attitude towards this institution you don't suspect that they're going to rip you off for, for their money or that they steal you things or that they, they want to make you dependent, yeah? get you addicted on retreats <laughs> and then live off, you know, leech, leech your savings off you or that they're going to steal your soul or, or do something to you or want to indoctrinate you, brainwash you and then send you out there to recruit other <laughs> unsuspecting citizens. You, you, you trust that these people here are good people, that they uh, offer their energies for not very high wages and make a beautiful place possible. Yeah. So this attitude is a very, very direct consequence of having trust and faith. I think it's important, maybe you don't recognize a deficiency in trust and faith in your life, but you may recognize the, the actuality of some of its opposites, you know, burdened, worried, doubtful, perplexed, timid, wavering, paralyzed, you know, all these might be indications uh, of a simple lack of trust, a simple lack of the capacity to trust. Now, how to strengthen trust? This is interesting. You have to associate with people who exude that. Yeah. And there you have to be discerning because um, manic delusion can be looking equally impressive like confidence. You know, If you know manic people, they have a real glow sometimes. <coughs> yeah. So not everything that glows uh, should instill your trust and your confidence. Yeah. Um, but it is probably fair to say that uh, sadha as a virtue is not strengthened by argument. 
It is not strengthened by sheer information. It is strengthened by associating with people who exude clarity, resoluteness, uprightness, honesty, transparency. Yeah. Those would be things that I clearly identify for me as, as giving uh, trust in me. People who are transparent with their power, uh, with their intentions, with their emotions, uh, where their money comes from, uh, what they want from me. Yeah, People who are clear, if there is a congruency with what they display and what they state as intention or as, as what is happening, that instills me with trust. I'm not saying this is the only way that you can find trust. Uh, you may you may uh, have other uh, criteria, but whatever your criteria are, I think it's good to make these criteria conscious. The four other of the virtues, um, I will do much less of a job on because we in many ways touch on them in other corners. The, the second one, virya, uh, is an energy that goes back to the hero. The word vir in there comes from the word hero. And um, in days when heroes could be depicted as manly figures um, safely, um, <laughs> this, uh, this idea of a kind of a knightly loyalty uh, rings maybe through, or the qualities of a soldier. Yeah, maybe you want to distinguish between military qualities and soldier-like qualities: loyalty, uh, willingness to take blows, uh, courage, uh, the capacity to apply energy, uh, steadfastness. All these sort of things, resol resoluteness. All this stuff, uh, which are we, we, we associate generally with um, martial archetypes, uh, are in that virya. That is not just physical, it is mental. As you will know that every effort of any duration needs a strong mental component. You do not climb a mountain with sheer muscle. You do not even run a hundred yards with sheer muscle. You need tremendous mental effort, tremendous energy. One of the reasons you are tired after a day of just sitting around and eating three meals is that the exercise you do takes mental energy. Yeah. People are always surprised how tired one can get by just sitting around in meditation. You know, it's kind of shocking. I haven't done anything. Yeah. I've just sat here all day in a warm room and it's still, I'm just wiped. It is because going against the grain of your attentional habits is taking mental energy. So this mental energy is virya. The Buddha very clearly stated when pressed what he would teach, one of the things, one of the few things he said, what he would teach, he said is, I am a teacher of energy. I'm a virya vadin. So I, I have a practice of energy. This is an interesting statement because it goes counter to a number of popular spiritual notions, namely that things that are good should be effortless. If it's not ego-driven, if it's really right, then it should not take any effort. So, I'm a man and I have never 
given birth, and it's unlikely that I will, but I am told birth is a completely natural process, and yet it doesn't strike me what I've heard that it is particularly effortless. Yeah? <laughs> so not everything that is natural means it doesn't cost energy, it doesn't hurt, or it doesn't take some effort. Viriya yeah. is a powerful quality. So the Buddha has always praised people who were willing to put in effort. If you don't have energy, that's the first task. Before you can focus your mind, you will need to find your energy. Without energy, very, very little is possible. With energy, obviously, you can be prone to restlessness, rambunctiousness, uh, expansiveness, which will need to be attuned a little bit. But without that energy, you are disarmed. You are very much lacking the choose you need to transform, to grow. So the first task is to get to trace your own energy. If you feel depleted, if you feel lacking your energy, you need to find where this energy goes, where it is sapped and where it comes back. And before you can demand of this energy that it be moral, that it be um, socially compatible with your environment, that it be appropriate, that it be wise, before you can demand all this kind of thing of your energy, you need to be sure that you feel the vibration that you feel your energy vibrating, that you feel the pulse, that you feel your own strength. So the Buddha very clearly uh, emphasized the notion of energy in many, many counts. There's three things he kept emphasizing. One of them was stillness. One of them was in inquiry. One of them uh, was energy. If you look at the particularly the meditative things, there is other things like uh, connections to others and ethics and so forth. But these three things always come back. There's so many Pali terms for energy. So if you think that your practice should be effortless, I, I, I can only disagree with you. Um, if it is possible that your practice runs effortless, beautiful, but do not expect this to stay that way. Or do not expect that it has to be that way, that anything that with effort is a bad thing. He was quite clear that effort is something necessary. Not always, and in attuned forms, but you need different types of energy. One type gets you up in the morning. Another type gets you from a quiet mind to an even more quiet mind. These are very different energies, but both have in common that they thrive on attunement and that they have something to do with emancipatory intentionality. Yeah. The third one, very brief, sati, mindfulness, about which we have a lot to say, but not tonight. The fourth one, samadhi, stillness, about which we hope to say also more in a uh, bigger space. And the last one is wisdom, panya. Um, that's a fascinating quality. Western practitioners have picked up on two things of Buddhist teaching most eagerly. One of them is the meditative teachings and one of them is the wisdom teachings. Um, now, what is wisdom? Um, let me read you. I have a little quote here. It's one of the earliest attempts to define and um, connotate wisdom. This attempt is from the Dhammasangani. It's from 
the, the first book of the Abhidhamma. So it's uh, slightly after the Buddha's lifetime, but very, very early, I would expect somewhere in the... Um, early f in the first centuries after after his um, Parinibbana. Um, bear with me, this is not bedtime reading. On, the, on that occasion, the dominant of wisdom is wisdom, understanding, search, research, search for the Dharma, discernment, discrimination, differentiation, erudition, expert skill, subtlety, clarity, reflection, investigation, amplitude, sagacity a guide to true welfare to the marks as they truly are. Insight, comprehension, a goad which urges the mind to move back on the right track. Wisdom as virtue, wisdom as strength, because ignorance cannot dislodge it, the sword of wisdom which cuts through the defilements, the lofty and overtowering height of wisdom, the light, luster and splendor of wisdom, the treasure of wisdom, Absence of delusion, search for dharmas, right understanding. From cleverness, wisdom is distinguished by its spiritual purpose, and we are told expressly that it is designed to cut off defilements of the mind. That's that's something to remember. You know? One of the hallmarks of wisdom is it is designed to reduce that which makes the mind unclear. Now the actual definition, wisdom penetrates into dharmas as they are in themselves. It disperses the darkness of delusion. Ooh, here we have a bit of racism. It uh, disperses the white fog of delusion. How about that? It covers up, the. it disperses the fog of delusion which covers up the own nature of the dharmas. So the, tr the essence of these dharmas is being uncovered by the quality of wisdom. They reveal their conditioned nature. Quite a, quite a mouthful. Yeah. I'm going to hang it up on the wall so that you can reread. Um, these five virtues are arranged in two pairs, interestingly. Um, and these two pairs are said to have to be in balance. So there is a certain risk if you favor one of these virtues over its counterpart. The two pairs are um, trust and wisdom. That's one pair. They counteract or counterbalance each other. And the other one is energy and stillness. Yeah. Energy and sati is the only one you can maximize um, without risk. You can never have enough sati, so, so we are told expressly. However, panya, wisdom, and um, trust, sadda, should be in balance. And so virya, effort, energy, um, application, and stillness and tranquility of mind should be in balance you easily recognize what, what happens through, so through imbalances. Yeah? If you have a lot of faith and uh, very, uh, are deficient in wisdom, you probably end up slightly naive and blue-eyed. Hmm? If you have no trust, no faith, and uh, lots of knowledge and wisdom, you 
are probably prone to cynicism. Yeah? You know a lot and you do little. If you are uh, very energetic uh, and this is not balanced with your capacity to stillness and stability, then you're likely to be restless and sort of in the activist camp. If you're um, still without the energy of virium, you may end up in a sort of slightly cushy, quietist type situation. You may be a little bourgeois yeah, in your meditative garden. Yeah? <laughs> It's a nice little garden, but just a window garden, you know, not a very big garden. It's not kind of, you're not creating much cosmos there in your universe, but you're just kind of tending to your little window garden and keep things peaceful and small so that nothing too big uh, becomes effortful. So you kind of try to keep things cushy. Yeah. I think that makes sense. And you probably will know if you know a little bit about the religion, history of religion or the history of uh, monastic communities, <laughs> you will find all of these, all of these borne, borne out by one and the, in, in one or the other time, in one or the other uh, lineage. Um, so, uh, I'd like to end. Please take these um, five qualities. Indra, on one hand, the authority. True authority comes from these indriyas, from these spiritual faculties. On the other hand, Indra also governs some of our actions and produces a dynamic in our lives that we need to learn to channel, to manage, sometimes to subdue and restrain. Um, and I guess you will recognize the bit about sleepiness and not forget yeah, to investigate your particular brand of it. Thank you for your attention. I let me be still for two minutes and then we have time for some walking meditation. <laughs>